0: So, the last three afternoons we've explored in this kind of progressive way that I laid out again yesterday. Instinctual body, psychological body, the existential body. Each time with sort of three ways of looking at that. And this afternoon I'd like to speak about what we might call uh, the collective body. Again, with, with three ways of looking at that. It's, it's quiet, I'm sure it is possible. How's that? Is that better? Yeah. Uh, okay, we will see. Well, I mean, how's that? Have you turned it up a bit? Is yeah. So is that, is that good enough now or does it need to go up a bit more? It's okay? All right. And sometimes my voice might drop a little, so you wave at me if you don't hear well. So, speak about uh, what we might call the collective body, and again with three ways of exploring that, which we'll call uh, solidarity, community, and love. Because we've spoken a lot on this retreat about, or we've investigated a lot in our practice on this retreat the way everything arises in body, and that investigation of what appears to be inner, the world of me, my body, heart, and mind, my story and issues and history, and what appears to be not me, everything else. And in various ways that we've explored in the teaching, in various ways that we've been penetrating in practice, in various ways that you've been reporting and exploring and opening up in, it's increasingly apparent to us, right, through our practice, increasingly apparent that that division or boundary is, is not a true one. It's a useful one, right, sometimes. For, for conventional life, it's not only useful, it's vitally important that we're able to distinguish between what we call me and what we call not me. What we call me and what we call you, and yet, it's we go beyond that capacity to distinguish between, and end up in a reliance upon that boundary as if it communicates the whole truth, and therein, it lies our our isolation, our sense of separateness or difference from life, and we explored some of that yesterday. And sometimes some of you have spoken it would be out in the nature, contact with trees and sky and earth. or here in the hall, sitting, uh, eyes closed or unfocused, and just sensing the sounds of the day, and that sense of boundary melting in some way, and us feeling uh, uh, an intimacy with. A commonality with, a unity with, maybe, an inclusiveness of, we called it yesterday, all of this. Beautiful. And there's, it's also worth pointing out that we tend to find that commonality, that unity, that uh, intimacy with something like the natural world. Relatively easily, or at least more easily, and find that sense of of melting into feeling uh, intimate with trees and sky and earth, for example, sounds, music, maybe like we heard earlier, more easily, more easily than what more easily than other people, other people. <laughs> so the the collective body that sense of actually coexisting with these other funny human beings that sense of awakening together and the question really of how to really how to be in skillful contact wise contact loving contact with ourselves and each other how to be respectful to the fact that, much as I, though my attention tends to orientate towards and even obsess about my awakening, actually, if the implications of my practice are that there's this fundamental inclusiveness, this intimacy, that I'm not as separate as I would, I tend to believe, then that starts to raise questions, I mean deep questions, heart questions, about the primacy of my (coughs) my process, my wants, my needs, my awakening over yours, theirs, whoever they may be. And we see, just in the world, the split between not just self and world in the way we've been Exploring, but between that sort of us and them mentality. The way our, the boundaries of what I identify with, I tend to expand. Most people manage to expand the boundaries of what they identify with from just this a little bit further. But the the general sort of evolution to the more or less adjusted adult human doesn't manage to extend them for the most part very far we might go from egocentric to family centric identify with my family I'm I'm concerned about their state of mind their etc and then from there we it tends to evolve in a few different directions along sort of more or less tribal lines it might be my football team it's quite a lot of that right my team are all okay but the other team are all terrible I I don't care about them and, or it, it gets aligned with the nation-state, right? Got a national, national-centric, a word, country-centric. Or my religion, or my beliefs, or just or my cultural reference points. When I was a teenager, there was a lot about my taste in, our taste in music, right? The collective of the, it doesn't seem to happen so much now, but You know that whole sort of whether you were goth or whether you were uh, punk or whether you were uh, whatever it might have been. And there's something comforting for us about expanding our sense of what we identify with beyond ourselves, but, crucially, not expanding it too far. There's something comforting about having an us. But part of what's comforting about having an us is that we... And the only way we can maintain a sense of an us is by contrasting it with them. So if we're interested in this increasingly clear and undeniable truth, that this body is the universe, that everything's included here, then our practice calls out for an investigation of what the collective body is, of how to practice with the collective body. (laughs) And we've been exploring in the previous days, we've been exploring in different contexts in how these mechanisms work generally in life, and particularly on how we can shine a light on them in, through meditation, and through meditative awareness, and through embodiment. And in speaking today, that's that's included, right? That's the engine of our capacity to know this truth about a, a profound inclusiveness, right? born of, our, of this intimacy, of this meditative regard. But I also want to speak, partly just not to leave it out, partly in a kind of transitional way, as this is the last day of the retreat, about ways to practice with the collective in, in ways that aren't particularly to do with meditation. One of the troubles with meditation retreats is they tend to put a lot of emphasis on meditation. Which is okay, all the while you're on meditation retreat. But the trouble is, that all too often one gets to the end of a meditation retreat and all one's heard about is meditation. And then you're going home from meditation retreat to a life of Dharma practice and all you've been given is great instructions for meditation. And that's going to take up half an hour or one hour of your every 24. And all you've got for the next other 23 hours is this great instruction you've been given at the end. Be mindful. Maybe you've got two instructions. Be mindful and be compassionate. <laughs> well, those are, those are really great instructions. But applying them is kind of challenging. So... just to reflect a little on these themes of the collective, these themes of our intimacy with, our solidarity with, our community with, our uh, fundamentally non-separate relationship with at least the other seven billion of us on the planet, plus all the rest of life on this planet, plus those yet to be born, plus those in other realms, those in other galaxies, those in other universes. We've got some expanding to do <laughs> of what we identify with. And from family centric to nation centric or religiocentric, to world centric, to cosmocentric. So, partly, I think that invites us to look at otherness and into what or who we make into other. And a lot of the time, we may look and say, "Well, I, I don't make. I'm not. I don't consciously put others out of my heart. We may not be busy making others other." Making others into the wrong one or the bad one, although we may notice some of that going on sometimes as well. If you look at the conflicts in your life, wherever they may be, conflicts that may be there in work, conflicts that may arise in your relationship or your family, right? The conflict is dependent upon you making the other wrong, bad in some way. Of course the other is equally convinced that they're right and that you're wrong it says something about the nature of conflict that both parties are equally convinced that they're right and so what we do with the otherness you know creates a sense of not even just distance but of a kind of harsh distance a combative distance a conflictual distance so there maybe we can find places in our life where we make Or reinforce that sense of otherness, and other in this sense as not identifiable with, and therefore somehow not relevant, or somehow not included. And if something's not included in our hearts, then our hearts are partial, our hearts are boundaried, our hearts are limited. And, as I say, it may be that we don't, it's not so much that we make others other, but that we just have an us blindness. A blindness about who the, the, our, our collective is. We tend to identify with what we're exposed to. So we identify more easily, of course we do, with family, because they are there, there's a so much shared time and history, etc., we tend to identify more easily with those we recognize around us, it sometimes needs some work to expand that field and in an environment like this, we might just look at our our collective here and say, "Well who are we who is other the various spiritual scenes that you may have some exposure to, whether Buddhist or, or not, or, or other. Often there's a lot of rhetoric of openness and love and acceptance and uh, care. And sometimes, along with the rhetoric of that, there's some unspoken or unconscious otherness. So we might just, uh, I mean, just to have a sense, I wonder if you've noticed who's here. I wonder if you've noticed who's not here. Who's other? I can notice myself, looking out, we're a very white group. And there's a whole lot of otherness in that, which asks questions. How come? We're not representative of the population, right, in terms of our ethnic balance here. We're hugely, majoritively, almost exclusively white. And I know that doesn't apply to everybody here. And sometimes your ethnic, uh, what do you identify with ethnically may not not actually show in skin colour, etc. So, I don't know how you identify in that way, whoever the you is. And, and this is important, it's kind of uncomfortable to talk about as well, which is part of how we make it other. So often, the question of ethnic or racial diversity only comes up when there starts to be a little bit, enough racial diversity that it kind of upsets the the unconscious comfort level of otherness. But there's so little here that it tends to not come up. How easily we can go along in just blind, white comfort? Most of us. It's probably not that experience. Those of you who are not white or don't identify as white, you'll have noticed. But I wonder, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I wonder, just to see for yourself, if it's even occurred to you as a thought how how white this scene is. And as a thought experiment, because one might say, well, so so what? That's just the people who have shown up. Nobody's excluded. Anybody would be welcome. And in theory that's true, but one has to explore the sense of collective, the sense of us and them that goes on in a rather unconscious way to see how welcome people might feel. So, those of you who are white, as a thought experiment, imagine that you sort of looked over the gate at Gaia House and everyone was black. And you sort of thought what was going on there might be interested, interesting, but there's a lot of black people all there doing this thing. But I'll check it out, and I look on the website. Oh, everyone on the website's black as well. <laughs> but, it's, it's, but I am quite interested, so I'll get their leaflet, and I look at the leaflet. Oh, everyone in the leaflet's black as well. <laughs> How welcome would you feel? painful. Huh? So some of the work around that, some of the work, most of the work around just that, just the fact that everybody in this retreat center and most of the retreat centers I go to is very largely, predominantly white. What's going to happen to change that? Are we, are we concerned enough to change that? Are we concerned that we basically, unconsciously, without volition, but unconsciously participating in something, and this is just an, just one example of it, right? I don't really want to bang the drum of this issue, even though it's an issue I find important to bang the drum of. <laughs> that we're somehow unconsciously, unintentionally, but nevertheless somehow colluding, without even necessarily noticing, in the... Perpetuating of an us and themness, and it tends to be that the that kind of issue is then brought up when somewhere something has a kind of just a general white feel about it, or when something uh, an environment has a generally hetero feel about it, or when it somewhere has a, a, a sort of general generational feel about it. That everyone's more or less of a particular age. It te- the issue tends to not arise until there's a few others to point it out. But particularly in populations where there's there's marginalisation and there's um um, um what's the, what's the, what's the dis- discrimination? Excuse me then those who've been marginalised and discriminated against, they've already got the burden of trying to, to reach across the otherness. So in this example, I think it's the responsibility of white people to notice that. It's the responsibility of places like Gaia House to start to be a bit more ethnically diverse in the website and the leaflet. And that, that example, as I say, it's not just to, to, for this example generally, but to look in our lives as a practice as well. This is very good, right? That's what we've been doing all week. But as well as that, to look in your lives where we create, where we support, or where we just unconsciously collude with a certain otherness. Where, and because as long as we collude with others, those who are other look different. To us. Of course, they might actually look different, but they seem different. So this solidarity, a beautiful term, right? Human solidarity. We want to have solidarity with other beings. When we do have solidarity, when we feel a commonality, it's very affirming, it's very beautiful. We feel the heart open. So I would say it's important to pay attention to where that solidarity begins and ends. And it's hard hard to speak about this without then mentioning a little bit the whole Charlie Hebdo thing. I was, so I live in France, and some of you do too, but I I was in San Francisco when all of that happened, so I was kind of uh, uh, following it a little bit from afar and there were lots of issues of solidarity in there right? i mean the whole the way the whole way that even begins out of a kind of incredibly painful crystallization of us and them and we are all familiar, more than familiar with the way the religious ideology and fanaticism and fundamentalism can create an us and them in the most sh- painful and most polarised and most violent ways. So, you're familiar with the situation. And then there was this so- example of a certain kind of solidarity with the I am Charlie hashtag. And i, I kind of reading and following this in San Francisco, and initially I was... Um, kind of touched by the expression of solidarity. But maybe partly because I'm attuned to this us and them-ness. And partly that comes from uh, having non-white family members, my wife and my children aren't white. So that kind of exposes me to some of the pain of that. I couldn't help but notice the partial solidarity And I thought at the time was, well, okay. I mean, there's actually twin aspects to that whole I am Charlie. There's the I am Charlie bit, which was about a sense of solidarity. Solidarity with victims. Solidarity for peace, etc. There was also a a less, there was also a much more polarizing side to that, actually. uh, More to do with I am Charlie as in an alignment with the what was being talked about as the right to free speech, but was almost about the right to be willfully offensive. Anyway, so my my reflection was, well, okay, I'm Charlie too, but I'm also all those Pakistani families who have been killed by drone attacks. And I'm also the 2,000 people who were massacred in Nigeria the day after the Charlie Hebdo attacks, which got so little attention in the news. Of course, it's it's painful. Just to, it's painful to speak about it. It's painful to dwell upon it. But we're asked to confront: where does our human solidarity begin and end? Because for all of us, that process of identifying. And identifying here, in all the ways we've been exploring, but identifying with a collective, it exposes us to where we make judgments. exposes us to those we tend to put out of our hearts. It exposes us to when we open in that way to the fact that we can't come to some easy resolution. It's uncomfortable. But that discomfort's important. There are more important things than being comfortable. It's more important to be questioning than to be comfortable. It's more important to wrestle with the heart than to be comfortable. So that it reminded me of that very beautiful poem by Thich Han, which probably some of you know. I tend never to read poems on retreats, and this one, I must have heard this poem read so many times on retreats. But it seemed particularly apposite in the in the wake of the I am Charlie hashtag. So I'll read it now. So Thich Nhat Hanh, if you don't know, is a, a well-known uh, and well-loved Vietnamese uh, Buddhist teacher and um, was very much part of all the dis displacement and uh, uh, victim of a lot of the genocidal activities uh, that were going on in Vietnam some decades ago and settled as a refugee in France. And he's now in his late 80s and is actually just coming out of a coma after being very ill and may not ever speak again. Don't say that I will depart tomorrow. Even today I am still arriving look deeply. Every second I am arriving, to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird with still fragile wings, learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that is alive. I am a mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of a river, and I'm the bird that swoops down to swallow the mayfly. I am a frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond, and I am the grass snake that silently feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones my legs as thin as bamboo sticks. And I am the arms merchant, selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12 year old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands and I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people, dying slowly in a forced labour camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom all over the earth. My pain is like a river of tears, so vast it fills the four oceans. Please call me by my true names so I can hear all my cries and laughter at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up and the door of my heart (coughs) could be left open, the door of compassion. it doesn't need such an extreme example of that we just uh, ex- explored in Paris to, to confront the us's and them's of our life. At, at, in families, at work, etc. And there's not much we can do about where the boundaries of other, others' hearts are. But there's much we can do. There's much our practice invites, I would say, calls out to us to do about examining the boundaries of our own heart. Seeing where we can be in solidarity with the human heart in all the conditions and expressions it shows up in. I want to say something about community as well. The Buddha talked about the three jewels of this practice. Right? Mm-hmm. In the tradition, if you're not familiar with, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. Buddha means awakening. Right? That uh, that process of of progressive and extraordinary awakening that's possible to the way things are. Buddha, Dharma, Dharma, the naturalness of things. The Dharma as the teachings that support that practice, etc. And then Sangha. Oh, other people. Our Dharma brothers and sisters, we might say. As a jewel, it's kind of interesting, as one of the the three jewels... Awakening, the way things are, and the support of others. Just being here on retreat together. The support, just consider the support that you receive to be here. The support of all of those who have contributed in some way for you even to have the time and space and money to be here. The support of everybody sitting here with you in the hall. Imagine if I just gave you the schedule and you just sit here on your own all day following it. And how, how, well, how well would you stick to the schedule? Oh, that's the support of others. And then, by your own being here, you're contributing to that field of support. So the, the sense of sangha, the sense of support, of community, the value, the connectivity, the heart-openingness, the sense of an expanded sense of identity, oh, we're doing this together. It tends to stand out, and sometimes it's one of the most powerful aspects of retreat practice for people. There's that sense of a kind of silent, precious commonality but we tend to live in rather into an individualistic culture. And other, Those of you who've spent a lot of time in Asia, you know, it's, quite, it's just the orientation of the culture is very different. It's much more the culture itself is collective. There's a sense of people feeling they basically belong to each other in a way that's quite different uh, in the European culture. We basically feel we belong to ourselves. An example of that, I have an uh, Indian friend who, when he's asked to travel, he has one condition when he travels. He'll go here, or go there, but his condition is that he must not, under any circumstances, be given a single room. And his condition, I'll travel, but I want to share. Isn't it because he says, oh, my whole life I've never slept in a room on my own. I would never, I wouldn't, a terrible idea. I wouldn't want to sleep in a room on my own. I've slept with my, my brothers and my uncles and friends. I, I don't want to sleep in a room on my own. How miserable, lonely, and frightening. <laughs> then, come to a place like Gaia House. And main request <laughs> please can I have a single room <laughs> <laughs> there's not just, just difference in culture but it's kind of an interesting contrast how we tend to gravitate for a sense of safety and security towards this one towards a sense of oh I need space you, know, you say that to somebody in Asia I need space like, well, space is the worst thing to have I need, I need contact. It's, you know, those of you who have travelled in Asia, you might be sitting in a waiting room on a, a train or something. It might be ten seats in the waiting room area. You sit there. somebody comes in, where are they going to sit? <laughs> here. <laughs> right here. Then we can have contact. Whereas if we, in Europe, you go into a room, you sit as far away as you possibly can from the other person. So just the nature of, of growing up in and uh, sort of belonging to uh, an individualistic culture is we tend to, we have a certain wariness of each other, a certain doubt of each other, and certain anxiety about each other. I'm, I'm not trying to idealize Asian culture, by the way, because that, that collective and very contactful culture just produces its own set of neuroses. But never mind about uh, <laughs> others, Others. let's move, right? So to the extent, to the extent that you feel that you have, again, I don't know your background, all of you, but to the extent that I'm assuming the majority of us have grown up in uh, what we consider to be a more uh, Western, more uh, individualistic culture, we tend towards a certain uh, wariness, so, we're, in our practice invites us to see how can we be contactful. It's no good have something says, oh, it's all, the whole universe is included, but I can't be in contact with any of it. <laughs> or, I can be in contact with it, but I can't be in contact with him or her or you, in some way. And I, this, I think this is particularly an issue for the kind of people who are attracted to silent retreat. <laughs> Right. Right. One of the attractions of silent retreat is you don't have to talk to anybody. <laughs> and, you know, some of us by nature are just more um, uh, so, uh, introvert, uh, more reflective, just kind of more comfortable. Some of us would just kind of like to be alone in some other way. Some of us are more gregarious or extrovert, etc. But nevertheless, we live in a relational world. And certainly to me, it's it's been... Uh, extraordinary to see how much that sense of intimacy and expansion and belonging and inclusiveness could be so tangible and present and beautiful with everything except human beings. And then how easily and quickly that could (laughs) shrink back to self-conscious identification in the face of these dreaded others. Not that other all others are dreaded, right? But again, that's our practice invites us to see where do we shrink? Where do we make others in some way, even the others that we might like, others that we might ironically even <coughs> want contact with or wish for contact with, to see where do we somehow make the other, other apart or through this wariness, partly cultural, partly personal, in whatever way, through this wariness, make ourselves tight. We need community, community to being one with others. So we're asked to see how can, we, how can we do that in the environments we live in, and particularly how can we actually so ha- be with others in, in a real way, not in just the sort of chit-chat way or the, 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 the way we manage details. How can we be with others and stay? This whole retreat's been about staying, staying embodied. The two tendencies wherever, and there may be places where relationship is very easy and smooth and beautiful for you. But it seems for all of us there are places where relationship is sticky, fearful, etc. And the two tendencies are either that we withdraw into ourselves, or that we we lo- we lose ourselves, we kind of um, we sort of go out to the other and we go out in different ways we go out trying to imp- trying to be pleasing or we go out trying to impress or or we go out in a lot of anxious anticipation about what he or she might be thinking about me etc etc so as a practice just that encouragement to see when we meet others just the, the opportunity to get to know your particular pattern? Do you tend to withdraw in? And if so, it's not that you can just switch that off, right? But you can just gently stay curious. What are you withdrawing from? What might you be afraid of? One can be gently curious to see, do I need to withdraw quite this much? It's not that, uh, oh no, because if you've got a lifelong pattern of doing that, the chances are, that the answer, do I need to withdraw? Yes. Right? But do I need to withdraw quite this much? What might happen if I, oh, soften a little, come forth a little, inhabit what I can feel a little more fully? And if the tendency is to go out, and go out. Just to see in that moment of, of recognising oh what happens if i come back the irony is that we go out to the other in some attempt to get to make contact some attempt to be contactful but the irony is that actually the more we stay at home in ourselves the more we can actually be intimate with another because as we've been seeing in our practice all intimacy happens here as soon as we go out to in our uh, fantasy about the other, in our need to please the other, in our trying to impress the other, then what we more than the impressing or the pleasing, what we mostly do is we make the other other. The more we stay at home, the more whether we're agreeing with or disagreeing with, liking or not liking there's nevertheless a kind of intimacy that's possible. Because where is that other? Oh, here. Here in awareness. Here in the perception. Here in the feeling. The other is right here. And when we meet another, a so-called another, in, in the actual recognition that the meeting is happening here, then something beautiful happens. And again, just to make this kind of um, real in our experience, we don't need the florid language and imagery of spiritual practice for this. But in the people that you actually hang out with, meet, like tomorrow when the silence ends, some of you will no doubt notice the tendency to, oh, people want to withdraw. Some of you will no doubt notice, that "Oh, oh, great, how long till the silence ends? I can't wait to... Tell you all about my whole retreat. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever your version is of that. But that interface, particularly in coming out of silence, that's a precious place to practice with the people you meet tomorrow, and then with the people you speak to on the train, and then with the people you go home to, and then with the people you work with. Solidarity of the heart. The community of experience. This collective body of awakening that we're all groping our way towards. Some of us more consciously than others. Some of us know that's what we're doing. Some of us say, I've got to practice and I'm trying to wake up. Some of us wouldn't say that at all. Some people, they just, they just uh, into whatever they're into. But it's all going in the same direction. Everybody wants happiness, peace, contentment, ease. Everybody wants to love and be loved. And we're all going about that with some mix of a bit of wisdom and a bit of misguidedness. And just that some of us, the proportions are um, more mixed in one direction than another. Human beings are amazing. All of them, all of us, deserving of our interest, deserving of our care, deserving of our solidarity, deserving of our understanding. And some actions are hard to understand. Some actions are, Im- some actions are impossible to be solidaritous with. <laughs> What's the word? Solidarity. To in solidarity with. But the heart, any heart, every heart, knows the same experience as this heart. Every heart knows pain and confusion and struggle Every heart knows joy. Every heart's longing for ease. We are in solidarity with every human heart. It's not really my heart or your heart, my feelings or your feelings. They're human feelings. The human awareness, the human life, human body So in solidarity with every human heart may we really learn and learn more and learn again to actually love each other, to actually be in solidarity with each other, to know the community of our hearts. there's 20 minutes or so before supper time to (coughs) hang out in whatever condition the heart is appearing in right now thank you